Hi, and welcome to the March 6th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida, and my desire is to help you grow in your understanding and enjoyment of God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Today's reading is in Numbers chapter 35 and 36 and Mark chapter 10. Once again, that's Numbers 35 and 36 and Mark chapter 10. Now, if you haven't read that yet, hit pause, go back, read God's word for yourself, listening to what he would say to you, and then come back and hit play and listen to, you know, some comments that I've got. Um, But if you've already read it, let's get started. Okay, so let's look at Numbers 35. In verses 1 through 5, we have the inheritance of the Levites. Um, one of the things about the Levites is that they were a special part, a special tribe set apart for the Lord. Um, their job as Levites was to assist the priests in the work of the tabernacle. And so uh, they, they were a special tribe called apart for the Lord. And so the Lord did not give them a territory. He was not going to allow them to have a territory like all of the other tribes had. Whenever they went across, you know, Judah would have its own large territory with all of the cities and Simeon and Benjamin and Dan and all of those tribes. They're going to get their own territories. Not so with the Levites. What's going on with the Levites is the Lord tells each of the other tribes to give cities in their territories to the Levites. So essentially, the Levites are just going to be scattered throughout all of Israel. Um, I'm sure that there is some reasoning behind this. I'm sure there's some reason why God did this. Um, But essentially, long story short, the Levites get spread throughout all of the uh, other 11 tribes, uh, and they don't get territory, they get cities where they can stay, and then they're also allotted pasture land around those cities. In verses 6 through 34, we read about the cities of refuge. Cities of refuge. Uh, Long story short, I'm not going to go into all of the details going verse by verse through this, but essentially, God said human life is so valuable that if someone kills someone else intentionally or unintentionally, there are six cities that will be designated, three on the east side of the Jordan River, three on the west side of the Jordan River. And these designated cities will be you know, spread throughout so that uh, they will be relatively easy to get to uh, no matter where you are. So that if you are guilty, if, if you, through some action of your own, whether intentional or unintentional, someone died because of something you did, you better hightail it to one of those six cities, the cities of refuge. Now, what would happen is uh, we understand that there was an avenger of blood. This was some close family member that when they heard that one of their family members was killed, they would immediately try to find out who did this thing. And then they would have the right to take your life if you were the one that killed them, whether it was intentionally or unintentionally. They would have the right to take your life. The But what was done is that instead of the matter being handled on the individual basis, you would hightail it to the city of refuge. 
and the elders there would determine your guilt or your innocence. In fact, in verse 12, it says, the one who kills someone will not die until he stands trial before the assembly. And so all of a sudden, we have uh, a trial by a group of your peers, you know, by a jury of your peers. That's that's verse 12. And so we see that this, they're, they're developing government in how they do things and the right way to go about things. God is guiding them in this. Now, what would happen is if the assembly determined that you were guilty, that you had actually committed murder because there was malice, there was intent, then they would say, you are not welcome here. And they would boot you out of the city of refuge and the avenger of blood had the right to take your life, to kill you. And so that would be judgment, justice that was carried out. In fact, God said that uh, there was no ransom to be paid for someone if they actually killed uh, an individual, uh, that they had, they forfeited their life if it was intentional. And so by virtue of the fact that the assembly booted them out of the city of refuge, they were now exposed. The avenger of blood, the family member of the one who was killed, had the right to take your life. But if the assembly acknowledged that you were innocent, that yes, someone died, um, but it wasn't you, or it was you, but there was no malice. You did not intend to do this. There was an accident, a horrible accident that happened, and you had no intention of, of committing this, uh, this act. And so they would say, well, you are innocent of murder. This was an accidental homicide. Someone did die, but it was accidental. And so what would happen is, is if you had done this, you would have to stay in the city of refuge. You would have to stay within the city walls, and if you ever left the uh, the city walls, the avenger of blood, even though you were declared innocent, the avenger of blood could still take your life, but you were untouchable as you sought asylum in the city of refuge. The only thing that would allow you to be let uh, allow you to be let go from the city of refuge and for the avenger of blood to have no right to take your life was the death of the high priest. And uh, you know if. If the high priest was, we if he still had 20, 30 years left on him, you were going to be in that city a good long while. And we may say, well, that's not fair. If you're declared innocent, that's not fair that you have to continue to seek asylum or else if you left the city, you would be killed. Well, what we see here is the fact that God is acknowledging that even though, even though, it was not a murder, even though it was an accident, that there still has been a death, a premature death. And so this cannot be treated whimsically. And so even though it was someone who did not intend to kill this person, it seems as if God told the Israelites, this is how you will um, value life, that even if it's an accidental death, then the one who committed that accident still needs to stay in that place. We need to acknowledge that a death happened. And uh, and it was, it was not natural causes. It was because of someone else's actions. And so I think that's what's going on. Um, the Lord is, is allowing for someone to be declared innocent, but still keeping them, still demanding that they stay in that city of refuge or else forfeit their life. And it's, I believe, because God just wanted them to continue to value life even if a life was taken accidentally. 
Okay, so let's look at Numbers 36. Numbers 36 takes us all the way back to uh, Numbers 27. In Numbers 27, verses 1 through 11, it, talk about the, it talked about the daughters of Zelophehad um, and how that this man died uh, for his own sin, um, according to the daughters, that uh, apparently he did something, he sinned, and, and he died as a result of that. Not sure what that was, but anyway... Um, they knew that within the cultural understanding of ownership, land ownership, that they would have no right uh, to the land because they were daughters and they wanted to maintain to, to maintain their father's name. So uh, Moses sought the Lord's counsel and the Lord told Moses, that yes, what they bring up is good, it's right. Uh, yes, they as daughters, if there is no son, then they as daughters uh, can have the land that uh, in you know the inheritance eventually that would come from the uh, the the dad, the fathers, the the parents. Um, but when we get to Numbers thirty six, we see these daughters coming up again. And now we realize that uh, this instruction of the Lord in Numbers 27 had unintended consequences as far as the Israelites were concerned. You know, everything the Lord does is good and right, but as far as the Israelites' experience of it, uh, they were concerned about the unintended consequences. And the unintended consequences were this. Well, what if a daughter... Uh, since there is no son, the daughter inherits inherits the land of her father, or daughters inherit the land of their father, and then she marries someone in another tribe of Israel. For instance, if a woman in the tribe of Judah, who inherited land from her father in Judah, but then she married a man of the tribe of Gad, well, that land in Judah could belong to the tribe of Gad now. You know, and so you would have all sorts of unintended consequences in the mix-up of the land, and so uh, once again, this is a matter that needed wisdom, and so the the verdict on this was that in order for the women to maintain their own individual possession of property, uh, they had to marry someone within their own tribe, within their own tribe, and they could continue to be their own landowners um, if they married someone within their own tribe. Uh, but of course, if, uh, you know, that they could forfeit that and, and marry a man in another tribe, and they would, you know, as the wife, inherit the land that he was on. So it was just, I, I just want you to know that this whole Abrahamic covenant was not just that the Messiah would come, you know, um, it was and all the, as wonderful as that was. It wasn't just that there were going to be multitudes of people that were going to come from Abraham's body, you know, that Israel would be a great nation. It's not just that. It was also the land. And so we understand that the Israelites in the Old Testament were very cautious, very careful about the land because they realized that it was part of the covenant. And so anyway, so we have this situation where it came up where women could inherit property from their fathers, according to Numbers 27, but in order for those women who inherited property from their fathers to maintain that property in their own individual tribe, they had to marry someone in their tribe. So there you know. That's the rest of the story. <laughs>
let's, uh, let's just take it a bit at a time, try to get through this reasonably quickly. In verses 1 through 12, we come to understand of the issue of divorce and the understanding of the issue of divorce in Israelite society. And so uh, Jesus was uh, making his way to Jerusalem. You know, the uh, Mark has 16 chapters. The first 10 chapters are Jesus' birth all the way up to the final week, all 10 chapters. I mean, it, it, it recounts about 33 years, 10 chapters. And the last six chapters is the last week of Jesus' life. I mean, this is just an incredible amount of time that is focused on the last week. And so Jesus in Mark 10 is making his way to Jerusalem as we uh, begin the chapters on that will focus on the last week of Jesus' life. So we have in verse 2 that some Pharisees came to test him. That's the language in, in verse 2 in our English translation. Some Pharisees came to test him. Now, that word test in the original language means to obtain information to be used against a person by trying to cause someone to make a mistake. So they were trying to get Jesus tripped up. They were trying to get him to make a mistake, to say something, so that as they obtained that information, they could use it against him. That's the word. The Pharisees came to test him. They were looking for something to use against him, to malign him and discredit him. And so they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, Jesus, uh, knowing of not just the scriptures, but also he was savvy with people. Luke 2.52 said that he grew not only in favor with God, but in favor with people. So he was a student of the Lord and of the word, but he was also a student of people. And so when they came to him saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He understood that there were two schools of thought in the Pharisaic um, group regarding divorce. They would go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, and we're going to get be getting to that in just a few days. But Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, where Moses talked about divorce, and all Pharisees agreed that divorce was permitted by God. It was permitted. They also agreed that the husband was the initiator of divorce, and in fact, this was the Jews, they saw that the husband had to be the initiator. It could not be the wife. It had to be the husband. And so the husband had to initiate the divorce. And then three, a divorce allowed for a remarriage. It allowed for a remarriage. This was all Pharisees believed this. But within the Pharisees, there were two groups of people regarding divorce. There was the group that followed Rabbi Shammai, and he taught that only immorality, immorality allowed for a divorce. He said, you can't get a divorce for any cause. It has to be for some grave moral ill. But Rabbi Hillel taught that anything could, uh, you know, precipitate in a divorce. You know, even if your wife burnt your meal, and you may think I'm making that up, I'm not making that up. This was actually one of the allowances that if she burnt your meal, you could divorce her. So Shammai said there had to be some moral failure, even adultery. Hillel said you can divorce her for anything. And so when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
they had Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 in mind, and they also knew that regardless of how Jesus answered, he would even split the Pharisees, the Pharisees, but also all of the Jews that sided with one Pharisee or the other, Jesus would split the crowd. And so they were. They threw a question at him. They probably crafted this thing well. We're wondering how is it that we can word this thing? Where is it that we can ask it so that we get him? And so they asked him the question. And they're just trying to hold their smiles in because they think they're about to say checkmate. But Jesus would never allow himself to be checkmated. He was never on the defense always on the offense. And so the next verse in verse 3, it says, He replied to them, What did Moses command you? Do you know what Jesus did? He took it back to the scripture. They asked him, they came and said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They were asking him what his thoughts were, but what did Jesus do? He took it back to the scripture. Friends, I'm telling you, we need to learn from Jesus. When someone asks our opinion, we need to immediately think, What does the scripture say about this? This is what Jesus did. He took it back to the scripture. But he knew that they were going to be thinking of Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read that for you in just a few moments. But he knew they were going to be thinking about that. And they said in verse 4, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. In fact, the divorce process in the Jewish mind was three steps. One, write the paper. Two, put it in their hand. Three, send them away. And so they were giving steps one and steps three. You know, the implied is, of course, you put it in their hand. Moses permitted us to write the papers, step one. They didn't mention put it in their hands, but it was implied. And then the third step, send her away. That's how divorce happened. So let's go back. And again, I realize we can make this very long. I don't want to do that. But let's just go back um, to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, to the passage that they were referring to, that Jesus fully had in mind when they said, uh, Moses permitted us to write a divorce paper and send her away. Well, listen to what Moses said as God's Holy Spirit moved him in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Here it is. The Bible says, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. And so you can understand that there would be, you know, this is me talking, this isn't me reading the scripture. You, you can understand how there would be one Pharisee that would say, one rabbi that would say, this is a moral failure. Another would say something indecent, you know, that, that can be a burnt meal because Moses doesn't spe get specific. He says, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Verse 2, if after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her and writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her, and sends her away. See, there we have the three steps. He writes a divorce certificate, he hands it to her, and sends her away from his house, or if he dies... The first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled because that would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Um, whenever we look at this, the, the big summary is this. 
Moses says that if a marriage ends in divorce and the husband initiates it, which would be how it would happen, and the wife leaves a divorced woman, she marries someone else, and then her second husband divorces her? Well, we realize that um, the first husband, if he was to say, hey, I didn't have it so bad after all with my wife, I'm going to get her back after she's been married to the second husband and now is divorced the second time. Moses is saying the first husband cannot get her back because he says that she has been defiled. He has been defiled. Um, verse four, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled because that would be detestable to the Lord. Now, I want you to know that even though the Bible does call the woman defiled uh, for being involved in a divorce, we also realize in Leviticus 18.20 that it says that a man who is in a divorce and then remarries is also defiled. So I don't want you to think that this is just relating to women. The Leviticus 18.20 passage also includes men in this. So, even though divorce was permitted, it was not presented in a good light. That's what we see in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Divorce was permitted, but it was not presented in a good light. And Jesus, in verse 5, going back to our passage in Mark, Jesus now explains Moses' words. In verse 5, he said, He wrote this command, Jesus told them, He wrote this command to you because of the hardness of your hearts. He wrote this command to you because of the hardness of your hearts. What's he talking about? Hardness of hearts. He's talking about people who are not tender to the things of God. They, they're not willing to um, acknowledge that their sinful desires and their actions are wrong and sinful. And they're not willing to have a malleable heart that's moldable by the Holy Spirit. He said, your hearts are so hard, you're stuck in what you believe and you are, you're in your sins. In fact, the Pharisees were dead in their sins. He said, he gave this command for you. Now, Jesus is comparing those Pharisees in front of him all the way back to the crowd that, that Moses wrote to. He said he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your heart. So one of the things we realize is that when we read Deuteronomy 24, that passage I just read you about if a man marries a woman and he finds something indecent in her and he divorces her and she marries somebody else and then that second husband divorces her, the first husband cannot get her back, that passage, Jesus is saying that Moses did not write that as the ideal that he did not approve or initiate divorce. He simply wrote a law to manage what was already going on. So I want you to realize that a lot of times, at least in Deuteronomy 24, we've got this coming right out of Jesus' mouth. Sometimes when we're reading God's word, particularly in the Old Testament, when we see that there are things that are permissible, it's not that that's the ideal. It's that the Lord, through the prophet, that's writing the, uh, the scripture is stri simply striving to manage sin, that there is this going on and so it is being managed. It's being, you know, uh, having some walls set up around it um, because it was going to happen. And so that's what Jesus said. He wrote this command for you. Moses wrote that command allowing for divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. 
But then Jesus moves away from the negative and goes to the ideal. And here in verses 6 through six uh, through 8, Jesus is going to quote Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 10, uh, verses 6 through 8. Mark 10, verses 6 through 8. It says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So Jesus is quoting from Genesis chapter 127 and chapter 2 verse 24, when he is saying, this is the ideal. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, and for this reason, they will leave their father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus is saying that marriage takes two individuals that continue to maintain their individual identity, but they are becoming one. And therefore, he goes to verse 9, and he gives the the, the natural... Uh, consequence of this or the natural result of those commands. Verse 9, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus clearly was giving the ideal and talking about the permanence of marriage, the permanence of marriage. And then he goes on to address this topic a little further with his disciples. Listen to verses 10 through 12. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. Verse 11, he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Verse 12, also if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now some think that uh, that verse 12 may have been words that came out of Jesus' mouth, or they may have been Mark. Uh saying, okay, I am, because Mark, who was Mark writing to? Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience that knew the Old Testament. That's why he quoted the Old Testament prolifically. Mark is writing to a Gentile audience. And in the Roman world, in the Roman culture, women could divorce their husbands. And so it's possible that Mark added the, the implication for, you know, if your wife divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Mark is just giving us whether this is Jesus that said it or Mark that just adds it in for his his Roman listeners, he's making it clear that marriage is the ideal. Permanence in marriage is the ideal. Divorce is never the ideal. It's never the ideal. In Matthew chapter, but I also want you to realize that anytime you read in Scripture, God didn't give us you know an instruction manual with bullet points where all we have to do is just go and look at the bullet points. He wants us to know his word so well that we're pulling in from everything. And so you can't just read one passage of scripture and say, this is all that the Bible teaches on this. That's not true. We, we have to know God's word so well that even as we're reading a text, we're thinking about the other things that come to bear on it. And in Matthew 5.32, Jesus allowed for sexual immorality to be a just cause for divorce. He said, except for sexual immorality, she commits adultery. Um, and... I believe that where Jesus allows for a biblical divorce because of adultery, I do believe that marriage, remarriage, is not a sin. That where God allows for a biblical divorce because of unfaithfulness of the other spouse, I believe clearly that where God affirms that as the escape hatch, 
then there can be a marriage after that. And there is no sin as far as as far as I'm concerned. And so where do I get this from? Well, you know, God divorced Israel, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. God actually divorced Israel. Did you know that God is divorced? And did you know that in many of our churches, God himself could not be a pastor, could not be a deacon? And some say, well, you know, God's divorce is the only situation where there was a truly innocent partner. Well, I would draw you to Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, where the Bible calls Joseph a righteous man in the same verse and at the same time that he was contemplating divorcing Mary because she was pregnant and he didn't believe that this was a virgin, uh, you know, that, that she had uh, had no relations with a man. He believed that she had committed sexual immorality, and so he was willing and ready to divorce her. And the Bible actually calls him righteous even as he's preparing to divorce her. So I want you to know that while the Bible holds up the ideal of marriage and always looks down upon divorce, um, I, I because it's not it's not good even a divorce where there is sexual immorality that's bad because someone in the marriage was unfaithful and so divorce always comes about because of sin at least on one person's part probably uh, you know with the husband and the wife but probably at least it's on one person's part but i just want you to know that even as we strive for the ideal especially because it is a picture of christ and the church that we read about in ephesians 5 i want you to realize that this is not the unpardonable sin it is not the unpardonable sin. Friend, God himself divorced Israel, and it calls Joseph a righteous man as he was prepared to divorce Mary. Even if you look at the story of the woman at the well, the woman at the well, and, and listen to Jesus talking to her, he says, go and get your husband. She said, uh, I, I have no husband. Listen to Jesus' words, the very next words that come out of his mouth. He said, you, you've rightfully said this because you've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. Did you know that Jesus, as God in the flesh, acknowledged all five marriages? He said, you have had five husbands. Some say that the first one is a marriage and every marriage after that is, a, uh, is an adulterous relationship. No, that's not true. That is not true. Um, Jesus... God in the flesh acknowledged her marriages. Is that the ideal? Certainly not. And some would say, oh, well, that happened to her before she was saved. Friend, I would ask you, have you ever sinned after you got saved? If you say no, you're not telling the truth. I'm telling you, all of us are messed up. And the, the beauty of following Jesus is knowing his word and loving him so much that we are striving for holiness and we're encouraging others in holiness. And we set up the ideal. What's the ideal? It's painted for us in scripture. But we also realize we are not going to hit the ideal and neither is anybody else. But that's what grace is for. And so I just want you to know that, that divorce is a big issue in so many of our churches, but I want you to know that even though it is, it is not a good thing at all because it breaks a picture, um, that, uh, that every sin, every sin can be forgiven. If you want to read a little bit more about divorce and marriage and things like that, I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It says quite a bit in there about that topic. Well, you know what? I've already spent 19 minutes talking about Mark, so let's quickly get through the rest of it. Verses 13 through 16, we have childlike trust. 
and entering the kingdom. And, you know, there were kids and the disciples wanted to push the kids away. And Jesus said, no, because he cared about children. But he saw also that there was a spiritual principle here that, uh, that just as someone, a little child has childlike faith, they trust somebody that tells them something. Um, just because somebody said it, they trust it. Jesus said, that's the kind of faith you got to have in order to get saved. That's the kind of faith it takes to please God, to enter the kingdom and to live in the kingdom. Uh, but then after that, he wasn't using the children just as a prop. It says in verse 16 that after taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. He blessed them. That, to me, bless them simply means that he said wonderful things to them to encourage them and to build them up. In verses 17 through 27, uh, we have uh, somebody that came to Jesus, and we've talked about this in Matthew, but basically this guy came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? This wasn't a trick question. This was legit. And uh, Jesus said, why do you call me good? I think that what Jesus was doing was saying, friend, you're using good too whimsically, you know? Uh, if, if you knew I was God, then yeah, you can call me good, but you're just calling me good and you think I'm just a teacher. He said, you're, you, you've got too low of a view of what good is. Uh, for those of us that know the scripture and know the book of Romans, we understand that one verse says, there's none good, no, not one. And so Jesus was questioning his definition of the word good, that he had too low of a standard. And so uh, Jesus said, well, you know, um, what, what, uh, you know, what, what commandments, uh, what, what, you know, obey the commandments. And, and uh, Jesus uh, called him to do that. The guy said, well, which ones? I've, I've obeyed all of them. And so Jesus, it says, looked at him and loved him and said, you have one thing. You lack one thing. Um, as we read this text, not only here in Mark, but also in the other gospels, we realize that Jesus went through the uh, some of the commands. And if, if we were to look at the Ten Commandments, the first tablet, the first tablet of the law had to do with God, and the second tablet of the law had to do with uh, our relationship with others. The first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God. The last five have to do with our relationship with others. And the commandment in the middle, commandment number five, honor your father and your mother, that's like the segue commandment, right? Because as we're children, our parents are kind of like our God. They tell us what to do and we have to obey. But then as we uh, grow older, and especially as we leave home, then we see honoring our parents not as someone to obey, but a neighbor to take care of and someone to honor. So, so anyway, the first tablet of the law is the first stone tablet is the laws of God. The second is the laws of man. And so the, the commandments that Jesus brought up were the laws regarding people, regarding people. And he said, you know, I've kept all of these from my youth. And Jesus said, hey, one thing you lack. And what Jesus did is he went to the first tablet of the law. He went to the commandment about God. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. He said, one thing you have, go sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. What was Jesus doing? Jesus wanted him to come face to face with the fact that he was not a good person. He had another God in his life, and his God was his wealth. And his God was so powerful in his heart that he was unwilling to give his money up to follow the Lord. Now, would giving his money up save him? No. It's just that he had another God. He wanted to have 
a relationship with the God of all creation while stilling have his wealth as his God. And Jesus said, no, I want, I just want to do the surgery right now. Go sell everything you've got, give it to the poor and come follow me. It says the man in verse 22 was dismayed by this command. He went away grieving because he had many possessions. And we think, oh, that's bad. No, that's good. He went away grieving. He didn't go away thinking lightly about this and saying, you know, forget that. I'm not going to do that. It says he went away grieving. You know what I wonder? I wonder if his grief was, oh my goodness, my wealth has such a, such a grasp on my heart. I want to believe that this man eventually came back to Jesus and was saved. I want to believe that this was godly grief brought about by the fact that he looked at the law and he realized that he was a lawbreaker, and so he came back and he was saved. I want to believe that. And Jesus goes on and talks about the difficulty of people, especially those that have wealth, of being saved. Why? Because it's their God. But with God, all things are possible. Then we see uh, in verses 28 through 31 that, uh, you know, Peter's saying, hey, you know, we've given up everything. You know, this guy just went away in grieving, but we've given up everything and we're following you. And Jesus in verses 29 through 31 says, yes, I know that. And he said, whatever you give up in this life, in this life, you will gain, but also in the life to come. So what's Jesus talking? We understand the life to come, that we've got heaven waiting on us. You know, we give up things in this life to serve the Lord. Um, but what's he mean in this life? I think what he means is if you give up your family because they don't want any, any part of your Jesus, well, ideally, you gain a church family, and it's a lot larger than your family. Uh, and, and it's not just an individual church. It's the, the body of believers that are in this world right now. You gain a larger family. And he said, you know, if you give up wealth, then ideally you're going to be a part of a, a congregation where there are going to be some people that may be well-to-do that might be able to share and to help you in that. And so Jesus is saying, ideally, that when you give something up, there's going to be within that a kingdom of God that exists on the earth right now there's going to be resources that you have that you don't even realize you, you can tap into yet. Verses 32 through 34, Jesus once again predicts his death, burial, and resurrection. The disciples don't get it. Verses 35 through 45, Jesus talks about the essential meaning of discipleship. Um, they were talking about wanting to be the greatest, James and John. They, they wanted to be the greatest. They wanted to sit beside Jesus when he came in his power and all the other disciples got upset at him. But Jesus said, you know what? In verses 42 through 45, he said, the, the, the people that are in leadership here on the earth, they lorded over them. They domineer their people. They use their people for their own, the leader's benefit. Jesus said, it's not going to be like that among you. If you want to follow me, then what leadership means is the higher you climb, the more you're required to serve. The greater you aspire to be in the kingdom, the more you better be a servant, you better even be a slave to all. Jesus said, when you serve others and even give sacrificially to others, that is true leadership. Someone who is a leader and is a follower of the Lord and they understand this principle will be a delight to be under because you understand it's not about them. They are serving for your benefit on your behalf. And then in verses 46 through 52, we have uh, the faith of blind Bartimaeus. Um, 
And uh, we have him calling out to Jesus, and Jesus asks what he wants done. He said, Rabboni, Rabbi, teacher, I want to see. And Jesus healed the man, according to verse 52, according to his faith. He said, go, your faith has saved you. Now, once again, when we see this, don't think about faith healers today. Faith healers today say and teach that your faith is what saves you that that's what fixes you. You've got to have enough faith and you got to work that faith up. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is one, knowing the truth, two, understanding and appropriating that truth, and three, trusting. That's what biblical faith is. How can they uh, believe without a preacher, without somebody proclaiming there's got to be a, that gaining of biblical information, whether you read it from God's word or you hear it from a Bible teacher or preacher, you've got to hear it. You've got to understand it, point two, but then you've got to trust. And that's what blind Bartimaeus did. It wasn't his faith that, uh, that healed him. It was as he was trusting in Jesus. Jesus healed him. That's what biblical faith is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, once again, we, we've come to the end of another chapter that talks about faith and trust. Lord, I pray that as that old song goes, that we would trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust in you and do what you tell us to do. Trust and obey. And, the, and it goes on to say, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. That song tells us how to be happy, how to be happy in you. It's to trust and obey. Lord Jesus, help us to see this. Help us to love you so much that we do trust you and we desire and delight to, to discover in your word what you have told us to believe, what you have told us to do, what you have told us not to believe and not to do and comply with it to obey. And help us, Lord, to find happiness in you as we do this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I went a little long again as we've got to the end of this episode, but uh, the city of refuge, that was a big thing. And then uh, Mark 10 regarding divorce and then uh, the uh, rich young ruler. Those are just rich. And I, I just wanted to speak into those things because I'm telling you that the, many believers, especially in the issues in Mark 10, they just don't understand it. And that's what I want to do in these podcasts is explain what they mean, at least as far as I understand it. And then encourage y'all to respond back in the Facebook group if, if you see things a little bit differently or if you want to just add in some extra things. I'm enjoying this time with y'all. I hope you have a good rest of the day and I will see you tomorrow. We'll talk to you then. Bye-bye. <music>